0: Patrick O'Shaughnessy is a Principal and Portfolio Manager at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Patrick and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. My guest this week is Chris Cole, founder and managing partner at Artemis Capital Management. Chris's specialty is in long volatility strategies, setting up portfolios which will benefit from significant change in markets. We discuss how a series of small bets can lead to disproportionately large nonlinear payoffs in both life and markets. Having read some of Chris's work, I knew that his thinking would bring a fresh perspective to the show. As metaphors for Chris's philosophy, we discuss what kind of watch he wears, Dennis Rodman, and movies. You can find show notes for this episode at InvestorFieldGuide.com forward slash Cole. And now, please enjoy this conversation with Chris Cole. Okay, Chris, this is going to be a lot of fun. Let's see how far down the rabbit hole we can go together today. Maybe a fun way to start would be um, for you to tell us what a ticker is. <laughs>
1: That's, it's a, uh, it is a watch that actually counts time uh, to your it counts time backwards to your death. So it's, uh, in many ways, some people might find that idea very morbid, but uh, actually I find it quite life-affirming because it says you only have a finite amount of linear time in your life.
0: This watch is oftentimes letting you know
1: You better use that to the best possible way
0: so i ask because we're going to talk a lot about exposure to what you call uh we'll call volatility and convexity which sound like kind of scary terms uh, but but really it's exposure to change you know what happens to you or your business or your portfolio um, when the status quo goes away and, and things change considerably and i think a neat way of understanding how that works how convexity works is to talk about a couple examples from, from life outside of investing. Um, so, so maybe you could touch on what some things that we do as human beings, good and bad, um, that give us positive or negative exposure to change and convexity.
1: So let's go back to the ticker idea. That's really interesting. I mean, for a long time, I wanted a watch that counted time you know, to my theoretical death, as morbid as that might be. And actually, there was... These guys actually kickstarted one, so I was, I, I was on the list to get it. But I like to think of human life almost like an option. We have nonlinear payoffs, but we're linearly exposed to time. So, an option is a financial instrument that you have long convexity, you're long this myriad of different possibilities, but there's a limited amount of time that the payouts can occur in. And as you get closer and closer to the expiration of that option, there is a uh, decay factor. It's much like a human life. So we experience time in a linear fashion, but we experience emotion, happiness non-linearly. So I think a lot of times life, which is, can be analogous to markets, is about how do you, how do you take this linear concept of time and extrapolate it into nonlinear satisfaction in your daily life. And then from that, there's actually the idea of long convexity trading as a market strategy that does the same idea in, in markets.
0: So what would be like a couple, um, let's say, daily practices or things that we do that would give us positive exposure to, let's say, positive nonlinear outcomes, and maybe some that, that have uh, you know, negative exposure, like maybe eating junk food or something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a myriad of different examples. Um, health and time are your most valuable assets. I, I think in my paper, I talk about the idea that, you know, Warren Buffett's worth $66 billion, but he's also in his late 80s. And I always ask people, would you switch places with Warren Buffett? And almost nobody says yes to that, to that trade. Um, everyone says no. Well, how much do you value your time then? I mean, your time is valued in the billions. And your health is valued in the billions, so how do you maximize both? How do you, how do you make sure you're getting the most out of that? Um, it means spending your time in ways that make you happy. It means spending your time around people that make you grow. It's about observing healthy habits. And it's about taking small risks that have big payoffs. Sometimes uh, I'm, this is funny, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a trite example, but I'm single and sometimes I'll go out with my friends and you see someone out there and someone's afraid to go talk to an attractive or nice girl. Say, well, what do you have to lose? Just a very small linear loss, a small linear loss, which might simply be pride or a small linear amount of time, with the potential exponential gain of maybe meeting the person you'll spend the rest of your life with, or maybe just meeting, meeting someone who might be really amazing that could be even a good friend. That's a perfect example or a simple example of an exchange of linearity for nonlinearity. But we can use even more complex examples. The idea of meditation, exercise, spending time learning to, to expand your neural connections. It takes a small amount of linear effort to produce massive nonlinear gain over long periods or longer periods of time. All are great examples. It's a really, a really
0: neat way of, of thinking about the concept, um, exposing yourself to huge potential benefits from a series of small investments. And, and sometimes you could almost think about this like insurance where you're paying something, right? You're investing something, losing something um, for the exposure to, you know, say a big payoff in the case of obviously it would be bad things in insurance. Um, but but it also seems as though you can flip that. And we'll, we'll get back to the investing side of this too, where you're not actually paying premiums, but you actually enjoy those little small investments. And maybe at first, you know, eating well or, or exercising or meditation when you, start, when you change from eating poorly and, and being lazy, it's a hard change. It is a payment. But as you continue to do those things, you start to actually enjoy the small investments. And then who knows what could happen with the big nonlinear payoffs. I think about this podcast as a perfect example of of the same idea. It's an investment of an hour or two hours every so often with somebody, um, which is almost always really interesting and enjoyable. And and who knows what what that could create beyond just a simple simple conversation. So uh, thank you. That's a great way of framing how exposure to convexity or or volatility or change uh, is a good thing in in your personal life. We can shift now to investing. So... How does that same idea, you mentioned you can do the same thing in a portfolio. So let's start to get into how that works. Maybe start by describing um, why you want exposure to be long volatility or convexity and why most investing strategies are actually the opposite of that.
1: I mean, I tend to think about the world in terms of there's so so many different investing strategies. But if if you were an alien that came down from outer space and you just simply looked at their return streams, it would tend to fit into one of two camps either long volatility, long convexity strategies, and short volatility, short convexity strategies. Short convexity strategies have a positive payout, usually, and then large, sometimes exponential declines, occasionally. And then long convexity strategies are the opposite. You have a small payment, where you're trying to stay neutral, but small payments, and then occasional large gains. And I think a lot of people don't realize that if you take things like not, not all these asset classes are bad. Of course, people have to have exposure to things like credit and long equity exposure and, and value investing. It's not necessarily a value judgment on short convexity, but these are all strategies that they work most of the time and then experience really large drawdowns when they don't work. And I think very few people are exposed to the opposite. And if most people's portfolios tend to be 97% short convexity and maybe 2 to 3%, if that, long convexity. And I think a lot of people found that out the hard way during the, during the financial crisis or during other risk-off periods. So convexity investing is about finding exposure to small bets that have small negative payouts or structuring investments to try to have neutral to slightly negative payouts that have
0: extreme payouts in periods of dislocation or change. So if we go back to defining convexity a little bit as sort of the nonlinear payoffs to change, can you expand a little bit more on why, say, let's take value investing as an example, why value investing is actually a short convexity strategy?
1: A valid classic strategy, but value investing extracts an equity risk premium. But during large-scale declines in markets, value investing is not immune to the crisis that can, can envelop a market endogenous crisis. And we've seen that in periods 1998, in 1928, in 2008. Now, the irony is that I would say in many ways value investing needs these crises because it Results in all this behavioral inefficiency that allows for the value risk premium to be extracted. So, oftentimes, value investing does the best after the period of crisis. But we're talking about trying to find investment strategies that actually will do well in a crisis or during change, but don't cost you that much during other periods of stability. If you take that, you combine that with value investing, you
0: have a very, very powerful combination. Do you think that the – because so many people will be familiar with the idea that uh, Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile is, you know, the best popular analog for this idea of being long convexity, that, you know, the opposite of fragility isn't isn't, – What's his line? The opposite of fragility isn't something that's strong. It's something that actually gets better when there's violence or change. Um, so you know, cash might protect you, but you're not going to you're not going to earn a big positive return by sitting in cash. Whereas what you're trying to build is something that earns a significantly large nonlinear payoff when things change considerably. Um, is, is it fair to say that um, the 2008 into 2009 period was the kind of period during which you would expect this strategy to do its best?
1: Uh, I think that's definitely a period of of large-scale systemic crisis is is a period that that can be very positive for these strategies. But I think that tends to take uh, most of the focus away from other environments that can also be very good. I mean, I would argue that the best type of macro investors have elements of convexity built into their process. So I once had the opportunity to talk to a, a legendary macro investor. And of course, I asked him a, a ton of questions. And he told me that the biggest fallacy about him is that he was right most of the time. Who was this? I, I can't, he's very private, so I can't really say who it was. I have well, he's, he's very, yeah. He was in the, one of the original, he was actually in the original Market Wizards. And he said, you know, the biggest fallacy about him is that he's right most of the time. He says he is wrong eight out of ten, nine out of ten times. It's just the one or two times that he's right, it pays for all the other times that he's wrong and more. So in that concept, he might not be looking for the world to end, right? The world doesn't have to end for him to make money. He's looking at different ideas, creative concepts about how reality might move. And then he's finding inexpensive ways to structure positions that are positively exposed to that change. So the best global macro investors have always executed that philosophy. You know, I mean, if you the, the idea that might be a change in a currency peg, or it might be the change in a political regime, but finding a way to express that in an inefficiency in the way it's priced, and they're positively exposed to that change. So I, I think oftentimes Taleb has done a great service to the concept of the ideas of you know, anti fragility and fragility, and black swan. But I think people have many times focused on core concept of disaster. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a disaster. Change is occurring all around us. It's finding ways to, to be robust and profit from that change, whether that's occurring
0: in markets or in a personal life. Speaking of Taleb and, and the idea of black swan, I, I love your definition or, or one definition of a black swan in your paper, which which is. The black swan is when fear turns to horror, which I think is a neat little, little uh, heuristic or trick. Is there a positive version of that same idea when, when something turns to something to define, say, a positive black swan?
1: Uh, I think a positive black swan is any surprise nonlinear benefit. from. I mean, I think, I think we've seen it where a guy starts a, a company in his bedroom and is excited about the potential and has no idea about how nonlinear that growth curve becomes. I mean, that's a, that's a great commercial example of that. If you look at a, if you look at a Facebook or even, a, you know, even before that a Dell or an Apple, another, another great nonlinear example of that in a personal dynamic is just you might meet thousands of people and one person defines your life. That's nonlinearity. Someone might say that's not a black swan. Everyone has, but everyone might have their own black swan person who's a game changer of all the thousands of people you meet. It might be a mentor. It might be a spouse. So th- these things don't necessarily have to be, they don't have to be negative. I think it's any time you expect a linear benefit and you end up getting a nonlinear benefit and that nonlinearity in markets is defined simply by, by profit and, and by money but I think in, in a personal life, you can define that through a, a variety of different emotional or other, other metrics.
0: Seems like a mindset that pairs nicely with this is the tinkerer's mindset of sort of trying a lot of different things without really any one goal in mind. Um, not, not knowing what to expect and therefore just trying a lot of different avenues. Um, I'm curious what you think of the kind of the current state of the world through this lens of convexity and exposure to different changes. You used a piece of art on the front of your paper. Maybe you could describe it. Um, But but the idea is that tremendous peace and stability can exist right on the edge of fragility um, and volatility. So maybe describe how that idea applies to where we are today in markets, um, with valuations, with the actions of central banks, and so on. Yeah. Well,
1: I mean, there's a control model now where I almost call it a mommy-daddy market, where Beginning in 2012, central banks began responding to market conditions rather than economic conditions. And that has that really started with Draghi's whatever-it-takes speech. And it's extended all the way to QE, QE3 and then what we've been seeing in Japan and with the ECB, where they will not allow any momentary drawdown in markets before either coming to the rescue with stimulus or with talking up markets but this actually creates risk. It doesn't destroy risk. You can't destroy risk. What they've done is they've taken returns from the future, and they've brought them to the present, and they've taken tales from the present and pushed them into the future. And in the paper, The Volatility and the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma, um, there's this wonderful piece of artwork, Andy D.S. Hope and Laurel Roth did. It's a tapestry, actually, that actually shows cooperation competition across time um, Two incredible artists out of San Francisco. And it builds up this amalgamation of different human achievements and conflict in a teetering Tower of Babel reference. It's incredible. The idea of Prisoner's Dilemma, where you end up in this equilibrium of false peace. And the, and the greatest idea of Prisoner's Dilemma is actually uh, the arms race where you have two sides, they build up, they don't trust one another, they build up massive arsenals of weapons that can destroy the world. And this creates a sense of stability. But it's not true stability, because what you've done is you've taken the potential for intermediate risk, or one or two standard deviation movements, and you've pushed the greater potential for five standard deviation or 10 standard deviation events. So an example I give in this paper, which is great from a book called Command and Control, it's an amazing and terrifying book. I mean, it's one day removed from Halloween, this is the scariest book you'll ever read, and it's all true, a bomber crashed in uh, rural North Carolina and was carrying two nuclear weapons. If either of them had detonated, it would have been over 100 times the power of Hiroshima. What year was this? This was, I think, in 1962. So cold, heavy cold war. Heavy cold war, yeah. So rural, n- rural North Carolina, this bomber crashes. The only thing that prevented a massive nuclear disaster in North Carolina was a, a, fail, a very simple fail-safe trigger, a very weak fail-safe trigger. But consider that if that bomb had gone off, it would have spread radioactive debris all over New York City and Washington, D.C. And you could could imagine that if all of a sudden a massive nuclear bomb exploded randomly in North Carolina, that could have well been the start of World War III and the end of the world by an accident. So it's an example that, that, fortunately, that never happened. Now, this book goes through many different accidents. But you have a situation where, Because of this arms race, we have this false stability. But underneath that is this incredible potential for vol. And so we see this every time people try to suppress smaller volatility. It's true with marriage counselors. They always say that that the people that are most likely to get divorced are the ones that aren't fighting. The ones that aren't fighting at all have the most tension because they've given up on one another. It happens with avalanche prevention uh, on ski slopes. The Forest Service will blow up different portions of a mountain, they'll dynamite mountains, to release the avalanche pressure. It's
0: like a forest fire kind of.
1: And a forest fire is the same thing. In fact, the sequoia trees in the in the Great Sequoia Forest, they will not release their their seeds until they sense a forest fire the forest fire clears out the bad trees and allows healthy trees to then develop. And as a result of that, the Forest Service was actually, uh, they actually now institute controlled burns. When they tried to do forest fire suppression, it resulted in bigger and bigger and bigger fires. So today what central banks are doing is, is completely analogous to all of, these, all of these different factors. They're trying to remove intermediate and small risks and at great, great potential of large risks. And the largest risk isn't even from markets, it's social I mean, I'm actually worried that democracy will not survive what they're what they're trying to do.
0: And flesh that out more. That's an extreme, certainly an extreme view. What, why, what, what would happen for socially for democracy or to be threatened the, the concept itself?
1: Well, it's, it's it's happened. It's there's a historical precedent for it, and that's why. Uh, I mean, if you if you read you know Devil Take the Hindmost, and you read the work of Neil Ferguson. It's why all these guys, I mean, they're not economists, they're historians, and they're sitting there being like, whoa, what is going on in the world? What are these central bankers doing? Why are all the historians criticizing central banks and the economists are all behind it? Because the historians know, and they've seen this time and time again, there's no, you end up having a situation where there is a suppression of volatility, a funneling of money into asset prices. There's a financial crisis. There's a massive wealth disparity, and that leads to sometimes a democratic revolution that results in a new regime that that causes tremendous issues. Um, I think, go back and look, I don't think there is a Hitler if there's not a Weimar Republic hyperinflation in the early 20s. So, in fact, some of the constitutional, uh, the suspension of constitutional controls that Hitler took advantage of later on were initiated to control the hyperinflation. And then obviously there was a tremendous anger by the middle class in Germany over their declining place in the world, which was misplaced into xenophobia and racism. So, I mean, Hitler was democratically elected, but he was democratically elected out of this type of, this type of horror of an economic disparity.
0: What's your opinion then on, on the 20s and, and the Great Depression? So we, there's another period... Where I guess maybe some of these similar issues existed, where there was massive income disparity, wealth disparity, um, obviously an enormous market crash, and then and then the Great Depression. And there's arguments that um, you know there wasn't enough easing, that, that there shouldn't have been a tightening, and that prolonged or even created what we think of as the Great Depression. Uh, but but certainly an existential threat, one with huge social spillover, kind of like what you're talking about. But but the U.S. survived, democracy survived. Um, do you think really that the U.S. could be vulnerable to something like that? Given we have you know a 1929 and uh, obviously a horrible period, um, but but what do you think of that period as as an example of all these ideas we're talking about?
1: There are some people that that use the the 30s um, as a this, one of the greatest books about this is uh, Lords of Finance. It's about the history of central banking through that period. I think a lot of people use the. Late 30s is an example of why we need more stimulus today. And I, I definitely think there, there could be more fiscal stimulus today. Um, that's maybe the, the difference between that period and now. But beyond that, I think what got us out of the Great Depression is that we won a world war. I mean, this seems to be the thing that, that none of the economists seem to, to take note of. It really, really helps your economy when, A, you have an existential threat overseas and you respond to that through massive production potential in a massive war, an incredible global war, and and B, after that global war, you're the only industrial superpower left standing. That is a growth model, The, the effect of World War II on resolving the issues of the Great Depression. I think there's a disconnect between people who just pretend that World War II didn't happen and it was all monetary and fiscal policy. And I I find that puzzling. I'm not saying that it's crazy to advocate a world war to get us out of the predicament that the global economy is in right now, but I, I think... I don't think people are being sort of radically honest when they don't admit how much World War II helped us resolve many of the issues stemming from the Great Depression.
0: So you mentioned earlier that you, know, you believe that some of what's happened is we've pulled returns from the future into the present, meaning that valuations have gotten higher, you know, interest rates are extremely low. And when you look at most, or certainly a lot of the places that I think do a nice job of forecasting, you know, big asset class future returns, the, the almost universal answer is that they, they're going to be a lot lower than historical numbers. So, you know, mid, low single digits on equities, maybe zero um, real returns on bonds. Um, so people seem to be aware that this is happening. Is, the, is your point that that's just not enough, that we should be expecting even much worse than that and that valuations and low interest rates are kind of the best current signs of that problem of that idea
1: of pulling returns forward i think it's a great a great sign of that and and now what, what happens when you end up having pension systems go belly up in the next 10 20 years because i mean some of these some of these systems have actuarial expected returns of you know 8% i mean that's their baseline expectation so either a there has to be a, a massive mean reversion in, in, in what people can earn, or b there has to be cuts in these programs. And then how do people respond to those cuts? Who are already politically angry? It presents a, a definitely a unique challenge there. And I, I, I think that's that's the biggest risk. The biggest risk is not a twenty percent or a thirty percent decline in markets. The, big, the bigger risk is how socially r- we respond to that. And then and then it also means you know if you look at if you look at some, someone like China, you have this massive urbanization. And in the event of a global recession, do they have social unrest if they're not able to, to sustain such a, a pronounced growth
0: rate? There have been a number of you know very famous mutual fund hedge fund managers who have positioned their portfolios, some during the crisis and did very well, but but have continued to do so since, um, whose retor- returns have been very bad. So that we'll call this group kind of doomsdayers, mm-hmm. um, people who expect very bad things. And so much of investing is timing, right? That even if those people or their investors are ultimately proven right, and it could be on any time scale, being early is indistinguishable from being wrong. Yeah. So, so how do you think about, and of course we have to be you know, a little bit humble here, like this could all be, we could all be wrong on, on this kind of negative view of, of what could happen in the future. So how do you think about, let's get, I wanna get into how you actually build a portfolio to express this view. So how do you think about that, sizing of the position how much of so if you want to be exposed positively if you want to do well in your portfolio when there's big change and have a nonlinear payoff how do you get that exposure how do you size it in your overall portfolio and is there a timing component can we size up and down that exposure given kind of current conditions in the market
1: there's a couple different ideas on how to and Artemis specializes in trying to find ways to own convexity inexpensively and carry that, uh, in some instances, even be positive carry. One way that we approach this problem is you might sell the first movement in markets for carry and buy the second movement. So you're selling linearity for carry and you're buying the non-linearity. That makes you negatively exposed to maybe a 5% decline in markets and positively exposed to very positively and non-linearly exposed to a 10 20 negative 20, negative 30% decline. That philosophy allows you to carry what is essentially insurance at a much, much less expensive cost. Um, and there's a variety of ways to do that with options. That is one concept. I think... A lot of people drive their energy into, uh, when they think convexity, they think tail risk. And the problem with a lot of tail risk funds is that if you're losing 10% a year, the average tail risk fund is down 40 to 50% over the last, uh, since 2012. And if you're down 50%, you have to make 100% just to be back at even. So it's one thing to have convexity, but if it's incredibly costly, then you end up in this, in this hole that you can't come back out of. One idea is to take a small amount of that convexity exposure and to pair it with beta or to pair it with value investing and other forms of traditional carry and maybe use the, since the, the carry is actually, or the, the other traditional investments tend to be linear in nature, you can maybe, you, you can actually lever those up slightly to pay for the cost of the tail risk. That, we've seen some people do this or use this approach. There's another, the, the approach that, that Artemis uses and some of our peers use is we consider ourselves long volatility, not tail risk. We're trying to create an alpha product. And long volatility will use, will sell volatility where it's expensive and recycle it into convexity to minimize the cost of carry. You may time your exposure to convexity, ramping it up or down based on the developments of markets, which also helps. So the difference between tail risk and long volatility is that tail risk is a true insurance policy, whereas long volatility is an active management strategy. Tail risk protects against endogenous and exogenous risk, meaning risk that comes from markets like 2008 and risk that comes externally from markets like a natural disaster. Whereas long volatility tends to focus mostly on endogenous risk and may or may not fully capture exogenous shocks. So when people come to this idea of carry, I like to to say that the long ball hedge fund index, which the put out, Artemis is a member of that. If you combine that with the S&P 500, since 2005 that's beaten the average hedge fund by 90%. So that combination of volatility exposure and classic classic investing techniques can yield tremendous benefits because if you can carry something in a way that isn't bleeding out 50% over over four or five years that is it might be bleeding out negative 2% a year but then makes you 40% in a year like 2008 that's That's a very, very powerful combination with traditional strategies.
0: I've always felt that macro investing is so hard because you need to get two things very right. You need to guess or or accurately forecast with some consistency what's going to happen. But more importantly, you need to position your portfolio in a way that will actually benefit um, if, if your forecasts come true. And those are two very hard things to do. Um, arguably impossible things to do or certainly impossible to identify someone that can do them for you. So from an an investor's perspective, someone out there listening, let's say they they buy every line of this argument that you want some some exposure to long volatility and that paired with traditional beta exposure, you get this really neat combination. Um, How could someone even do this? So obviously, you know, you do this with, with real money, but you know, from what I understand, you know the average Joe couldn't access that strategy. Is there a way of of doing this or getting this exposure that's that's pretty simple that doesn't require you know tremendous skill and experience?
1: If you're not an institution
0: or if, I, this is a terrible, there's actually a lack of retail products out there.
1: It's very hard for the average guy with twenty thousand dollars to invest to actually execute this. It's one thing if you're a a pension system or a a very Wealthy family office. Some ideas on this is is that to find combinations of strategies or managers or active strategies that are that are systematically and positively exposed to change. One, um, there aren't that many long volatility managers out there. I mean, this the, the CBOE Long Volatility Hedge Fund Index has about I think about uh, nine or ten managers. Artemis is one of them. But other asset classes that are long volatility um, systematic CTAs have a long volatility component to them. That's that's an asset class that is available from a retail perspective, and they offer some anti-correlation and convexity. I think contrarian global macro is another asset class where you might be able to find good managers. There are systematized strategies that can be executed that show that type of anti-correlation. I think the institutions that try to implement they might actually have a defensive component to their portfolio, which will include long ball, tail risk, systematic CTAs, and contrarian global macro that are all considered long convex anti correlated uh, managers and will take a combination approach. We always talk about the left side of the return distribution. Everyone's worried about classic losses uh, in 2008. We're forgetting about the right side. It's, you know, it's it's not trendy to talk about hyperinflation nowadays, but I think one of the scenarios that really is is quite scary is a destabilization of both stocks and bonds. There's a question, will the global financial system be able to tolerate a 100 or 200 basis point increase in rates over a period of a year without a complete meltdown in both the stock and and fixed income complexes, which would be disastrous to the system. And then what would governments do to respond to that? I, I'm a gold bog, I'm a believer in gold. I own gold. I, I don't own fiat gold. I don't think owning GLD is, I think it defeats the purpose of owning gold. I think you need to own physical gold. And that is a right-tail convex asset class. So that's another, that combination of these assets, I think, is, is quite defensive.
0: What would it take to convince you that you're wrong? That there aren't a lot of soft landings in in these sorts of things, but is there a combination of let's say central bank activity, valuations, interest rates, what pick your variable, where you would say okay the world hasn't hasn't ended, um, you know maybe this is what, call, what Ray Dalio would call a beautiful deleveraging or something like that. What, what has to happen for you to say okay? I don't have the concerns, the big, huge concerns, social, you know, democracy, some of the things we've talked about, for you to say I'm wrong and I need to change my stance.
1: No, it's, a, it's a great question because I ask myself and my staff that question all the time. I mean, like, what if we're just wrong? What if, and this is an existential question if you're a long volatility manager. It's a truly existential question. Is it possible that they can engineer forever an environment where we'll never have another 20% drawdown in markets, where markets can be continuously propped up by central banking? You know, it's interesting because to get the same benefit on bonds as we got in 2008 to now. I mean, you go back to uh, early 2008, the German Bund was around 4.5%. The U.S. Treasury is around 4.2%. Today, you know, Bund has gone all the way negative to, to flat. You know, U.S. Treasuries are around like 1.7%. To get the same convex benefit from fixed income, rates have to go all the way to 3 to negative 5%. It's crazy. But It's possible. Can capitalism function? Or will we go into a regime where there's just helicopter money, ultra low, zero rates forever, and that they can gradually release steam, gradually release bit by bit any volatility pressure, and centrally plan the global economy, and have this 10 or 15 year soft landing, and then inflate our way out of our pension problems, and inflate our way out of our debt problems, our global debt problems? it would be an empirical study of history would say that it's never happened before that they might have names for what they're doing now like quantitative easing or but that it's no different than what John Law did what the Romans did with decoinage so can it end in a way that is engineered sure it's possible to be wrong but i think the hurdle for that the burden of history The burden of math uh, would would argue heavily in the other direction. I'm not like Ben Bernanke, though. When Ben Bernanke says he's 100% certain that he's correct, that scares me. That really scares me. Because I'm never 100% certain that I'm correct. And the smartest people I know are never 100% certain on anything. So... I am very reasonably certain this will end in some element of vol, whether it's market vol, whether it's social vol, or whether it's war, how that vol is expressed. I'm not entirely certain, but I'll give, I'll give a less than 1% probability that, that I'm wrong and that they'll
0: engineer it. So, you know, we talked earlier about black swan being fear versus horror, right? A lot of some of the things you've just described, strike me as normal to be expected episodes of fear in markets like in my career, in the next three to four decades, there's going to be probably multiple 50 percent-plus drawdowns in stocks. There, there always have been, and that's part of, part of the equation. What, what I am curious about is the potential for the horror, the 90 percent drawdown in stocks, um, or, or you know across asset classes. I'm curious if you've thought about the counterbalance of technology and kind of the exponential growth of, uh, of technology and how it's improved our lives um, in, in non, many non, nonlinear ways and whether or not that can act as sort of a counterbalance to some of the, you know, the big problems that could result from, from the pension systems falling apart. I'm thinking basic things like how we produce food, um, how we get around, how it's getting cheaper and cheaper to do a lot of the basic things in life, and whether or not we can rely on, to some extent, the kind of human ingenuity and technological growth, sort of productivity growth, if you think about it in GDP terms, as a way to grow out of this in a more soft way, where it's not an engineered growing out of this, but... We just grow and we get better, and um, we raise interest rates in a normal fashion. And there's the normal twenty bear markets, and that's going to happen. It's not a reason to you know sell everything and and buy gold. C- could that happen? Does technology have? Is technology maybe a reason why you could be wrong?
1: It's a great question. I was actually at a conference. I spoke at a conference in Europe, and. Um, An individual pulled me aside. He had read the paper, Volatility and the Allegory of the Prisoner's Dilemma. And he said, Look, I really agree with a lot of what you've mentioned in this paper. However, I disagree with your, um, you know, I'm from Norway work for an origin pension system, we're heavy into oil. I disagree with your assertion that the global decline in commodity prices is, as I, as I put it, there's a decline in the real supply and demand, and there's a disconnect between the real and the surreal economy. I was saying that I would expect that given the decline in commodity prices, whenever we've seen that historically, we've seen a global decline follow. And it says, well, I, I think the game might be changing because of, uh, technology and the way that technology has impacted commodity prices, and particularly shale is a perfect example. In that sense, though, what we really need to explore is the interplay between the workforce, how that workforce is is impacted by the new technology, and then how classic econometric thinking is being impacted by the new technology as well. So if you uh, you have a situation where tremendous technological advancements, which is actually resulting in deflation, increased productivity growth, if you buy into that argument, um, all of a sudden, you have a huge portion of the population that is systematically underemployed. Now, the question is, how do we deal with that unemployment or underemployment? And are they systematically? I mean, no amount of money printing or no amount of stimulus is going to impact the fact that they don't have the job skills for the modern economy. So you have, in some instances, a game changer in this technology. And we're gonna, it's just amplifying. I mean, a substantial number of people make a living driving. And all of a sudden, all those people are going to be out of jobs when they're self-driving cars. So you have these policymakers that are responding using old tools to a changing game. And I, I think it's possible for a bright future to exist through technology change, and, but not if policymakers are looking to, to, in essence, use medicine on yesterday's problems. So you, you, can have a, you can have a situation where you're spending a tremendous amount of money in stimulus, and the tech companies are just buying back their own shares. They're not in the in the past. You, you would have a situation where a company would take the ultra low interest rates, invest in a plant, hire a bunch of workers, and then great, it works. Now it's a tech company that already has the needed engineers. They issue ultra low rates, or they uh, issue debt, and they buy back their shares. And now we have a, a dynamic where share buybacks have now eclipsed the operating earnings of the S and P 500. So in some instances you have this incredible technological change, but you have policies that are economic policies that are being applied to cure yesterday's technological regime, and it's it's causing more dislocations.
0: Obviously, this is we're veering outside of certainly my circle of competence. Thinking about kind of the future of jobs and and whether or not we have something like a universal basic income or or, or some way of dealing with this loss of jobs due to automation. But it seems like the the ideas of supply and demand and scarcity are hugely important to capitalism, key variables. And that many of the kind of things that we need, which historically have been scarce, to to live and be happy are, there's this deflation. They're they're cheaper and cheaper and easier and easier to access. And that a lot of the things that I think you are, I'm sure not hoping for, but, but worried about, might be significantly improved to the to the extent that you know your one percent that you're wrong, which is basically like saying you're certain, is a lot greater than one percent. I certainly hope so. And so the the idea of being long convexity, long vol is very appealing from a personal standpoint. But it's it's it seems like there are a lot of unknowns that could cause that position to be wrong, the long volatility position to be wrong in the future. So I'm curious how you believe or and maybe how your investors actually do size exposure to Artemis and to this long volatility strategy in the context of a portfolio. Is it five percent? Is it ten percent? Is it twenty percent? Well obviously there's no perfect number, you can only, you know, do your best. But but how should we think about this? Like if, if there's a much greater than one percent chance that that you're wrong. What what sizing is appropriate if people want to gain an exposure like through some of the other, like a CTA or some of the other vehicles that you mentioned earlier?
1: I think one needs to look at the different payouts. What is one hoping to get? And what type of change do you want to be positively exposed to? And what's the expected payout of that? And then that informs the sizing decision. For some of our larger clients, they actually can cross-collateralize our exposure. So that's that's how it's worked. But even in that scenario, it comes down to a, idea of, what is your idea of change? Is that a 10% decline in markets? Is it a 20% or a 50% decline? What are you trying to protect against? Or is it a 50% increase with tremendous volatility? Right, And, and, and then that informs that decision. It's interesting that the power of non-linearity is by combining the right assets. I use this example of of Dennis Rodman is a great example. This
0: is going to be my next question, so perfect. Yeah, it feeds into that.
1: I wrote this paper about Dennis Rodman and portfolio optimization. I think Yahoo picked it up and wrote an article about it. And somehow, somehow, a lot of the people thought I was uh, recommending that people invest like Dennis Rodman. It was, I don't, in, I was not saying that people should invest like Dennis Rodman, but the concept at the end of the day was that Dennis Rodman was a guy. He's part of the Hall of Fame, basketball Hall of Fame. Lowest scoring inductee in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And sometimes people say, why is he part of this Hall of Fame? The guy could barely score outside of five feet. Modern advanced statistics has taken another look at Rodman. And by a lot of metrics, Rodman is actually one of the 20 greatest players ever to play the game of basketball. Now, for people who don't know basketball, Dennis Rodman could not score. But Dennis Rodman was a prolific rebounder. When other people missed shots, he would go get the rebound. And he was better at this than anyone in history. Rodman secured about 30% of the defensive rebounds, 17% of the offensive rebounds. He was six standard deviations away from the mean in terms of rebounding. And that was a degree of statistical difference that no other player in any other stat had ever achieved. So Rodman was much better at rebounding compared to the average player than than Michael Jordan was at scoring. So ironically, teams didn't even need to guard Dennis Rodman. He couldn't score. He had no jump shot. He was a terrible free-throw shooter. He he was not an offensive threat. In many ways, on offense, teams were playing four against five. However, something bizarre happened when Rodman was on the floor. He, by simply putting Rodman, even with a group of mediocre offensive players, it greatly amplified the offensive potential of the team. So Rodman had one of the greatest uh, wins over replacement value, and Improvements in offensive efficiency when he played. He was a member of multiple championship teams, including two of the greatest teams ever to play the game. He won five championships. And when he went to a, a good team, he turned that good team great. And he went to a even a bad or a mediocre team, he turned that bad or mediocre team good. Because he was so good at rebounding, it created so many second-chance opportunities that adding him created nonlinearities. And this is this is kind of the idea behind a anti-correlated or convex exposure. Be it long volatility, systematic CTAs, or contrarian global macro, you take, it's almost like Dennis Rodman for the portfolio. You take these, these anti-correlated asset classes that are long convexity, they rebound the misses for your value stocks, for your fixed income, when things are not doing so well, um, and allow you to have non-linearities through, through the interplay of correlations in, 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 a, in a powerful way. How you size that, it largely depends on that mix of asset classes. But the point is, is recognizing how powerful that is and how those asset classes actually outperformed in 2008 when diversification failed. These asset classes, because they're positively exposed to change, did really, really well and would have been the difference between protecting a portfolio from disaster and also and having
0: a good outcomes. So. Yeah, really interesting analogy and, and uh, Nate Silver and, and his ilk have done some really neat stuff with statistics to look back and kind of change our opinions of different athletes through time. And, and Rodman, uh, I love your, your paper on Rodman, it's certainly one of the most interesting um, athletes ever. Uh, in that he was so bad at what we most glorify uh, and yet might be a top, you know, top 20 player of all time.
1: And it's like that, you know, the long vol hedge fund index and even the tail risk hedge fund index, if you just take 50-50, and just a naive 50-50 and put that with equity beta, we're not talking about any additional value you get from value stocks or momentum stocks or other alpha. Just take it and put it with beta. And that dramatically outperforms either, either of those dramatically outperform the average hedge fund since
0: 2005. It is, is how much of that, though, is just 2008, 2009? It's,
1: certainly, there's been an underperformance over the last four years. So, But I would go back and I would say, I spent a lot of time studying financial crisis in history. Consider the period of the, the ni- late 90s. Wonderful time for long volatility. Most people don't realize this, but vol averaged over 20 in the period between 1997 and 1999 the market was up 20-30% every single year but we had tremendous volatility there were two 20% drawdowns over that time period and the vix went up to 38 in 97 and retested 40 multiple times in 1998 and in both those years the market ended up over 20% So people tend to associate these periods of calamity with just 2008, but you can actually have high volatility and high change coupled with high asset prices. And the late 90s are an example of that. similar to uh, also the period of 87, which is not really on most people's radar screens. It's sometimes hard to find options data going back that far. But it's another example of a tremendous period of uh, high volatility that was actually contained within a year that, I mean, the market dropped 20% in one day and then rebounded very, very quickly.
0: Can you tell me a bit about your interest in art? Throughout, throughout everything you write, you've got these kind of amazing uh, pieces of artwork that seem to illustrate one of, the, one of the points that you're trying to make. So how did, how did you get so interested in art?
1: Uh, well, I actually, uh, in a past life, I actually spent a lot of time focusing on uh, cinematography and film. So uh, I actually studied cinematography in college way, way, way before ever touching Wall Street. So truly a past life. So I've always been interested in the visual arts. But I, I feel like a lot of times I hate this idea that people segment left brain, right brain. Because I think truly some of the investors I admire the most are actually truly creative. Particularly if you look at the global macro space, someone has to envision a reality that is different than the reality we have today and understand how to structure instruments to profit from that potential reality shift and assign probabilities on that. Now, intellectually, I actually don't see that as being that much different than some highly technical artists. I mean, if you look at, at great filmmakers, they're envisioning a reality, tour filmmakers are envisioning a reality that's different and finding ways to make that tangible and using technology to do it. It's not all that different of a skill set as most people than most people would imagine or even you look at um, Andy Diaz Hope and Laurel Roth who did the the brilliant tapestry the allegory of the prisoner's dilemma that's on that we had permission to use for my paper Andy used to be uh engineer at Apple so i think everyone can benefit by working out that side of the brain and having it cross play between the combination of technical and and logical and creative
0: Is a very very powerful combination. What movie, given your interest in cinematography, best exemplifies kind of this long volatility, exposed to change idea that we've been talking about?
1: Oh, you know, it's interesting because I think that was the end of my paper. There were two two great movies that I love. I think The Road Warrior really is a long volatility film in my awesome movie in my (laughs) mind because you have Mad Max. <laughs> mad max is is a man who really he's lost everything he's experienced this he, he really has very little more to lose very little linear losses but by putting himself out there in a, a moment of self-sacrifice he in essence achieves great nonlinear spiritual growth
0: So what's, remind me of, because I just saw the recent one, which I loved um, with Tom Hardy, but remind me of kind of the general plot for the original Road Warrior and and why, kind of how, uh, it was Mel Gibson, right? How Mel Gibson's character exemplifies these things.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, that follows a classic Western. The Road Warrior is a classic Western where you have a vestige of society with a sheriff who represents society and order. You have savages that will uh, challenge that order. And it takes a man who is part savage, part order, so to, to actually successfully navigate uh, and be the hero. So, you know, Mad Max has torn after the apocalypse. He's lost his wife. He's, he's lost his child. He is a soulless drifter who has really nothing left to lose, uh, who, who wanders out in the wasteland, and he's completely selfish. He's only focused on his own survival. But at some point in the movie, he decides to do something selfless. Uh, he decides to put himself at risk in a selfless form and, and actually protect this this civilization. And as a result, he gains back his humanity that he's lost. And of course, it's an incredible kinetic action film at the same time with classic, you know, Joseph Campbell mythology. The other one that's really uh, it actually just came out, Sorcerer, um, which for a long time was you could only see. A, that uh, they had old reels of it. It was recently re-released. It's a work by Friedkin. It's a brilliant short volatility story about a bunch of individuals stuck in... One was a ex-con who was on the run from the mob. Another one was a Lebanese terrorist. Another one was a French banker who had conned a bunch of people, and they'd all fled to South America. And they're given a large sum of money to drive a, nitroglycer- a, a truck full of dynamite um, and nitroglycerin to blow up a oil fire in the middle of the jungle. So they're driving these gigantic but rickety trucks with very explosive nitroglycerin through a horrific jungle environment where any misstep could cause the truck to blow up. But they're all doing it for money. And they're all men who are desperate because they got into their predicament by shorting volatility in their lives. Organized crime is a short form of a short volatility, short convexity. They find themselves in South America, and now they're just making a bigger short convexity bet in order to try to get out of their predicament, and they never learn. And so that's, that's, a, that's a classic film that, um, go check it out. It was, it was recently re-released, and it's a brilliant one as well.
0: Fantastic. What is the single most memorable day in your career in investing, hmm.
1: it's interesting. I'd have to say the day, the day Lehman went. I mean, it's such a it's such an easy choice, but that day is particularly interesting, and it's interesting for reasons I think most people wouldn't wouldn't think. And most people would say, okay, I, Artemis exists because of the money that I made over 2008. I've audited very large gains over that period, although it pre, that preexisted the the Artemis fund. And I think most people would say, oh wow, that's because you made a ton of money that day because you were long volatility. And I did make good returns that day. I think the real reason is because I put on more risk because this is the, as it started to develop, that was the beginning of where there was opportunity. So that's the difference in the thinking. It wasn't that I took the gain on that day. It's that I saw, wow, the opportunities are beginning to expand like I've never seen before. Now it's time to put on more risk. So it was the beginning of a journey, not the, not the end of one, as most people would imagine. The other day was most painful to me was actually the flash crash. And most, most people would think that would be a wonderful day. It was for about 10 minutes. I learned when you have a hedge position, I, I learned my big lesson that day because we had market drops 10% comes right back. And I learned not to change your hedges that day. That was a, that was a difficult lesson for me that day because we were very well positioned for that, made money into the, into the spike, and then as vol collapsed back down and had begun to actually adjust some positions and were caught off guard by the extremity of the moves. So what, what should have been a fantastic day ended up being not as fantastic as a result of an attempt to sort of rebalance into that.
0: What is the kindest thing that anyone's done for you um, across your career? The kindest? Wow, that's interesting. Because
1: there's a professional and a personal context on
0: that one. You can go either way. Yeah. Open it question.
1: I, uh, I was in a personal relationship. And I really wanted to grow my business. And she wanted something different. And she forego... She could have taken a lot more money than she, she did. But she didn't out of love. And that allowed the business to keep going.
0: That's something. That is <laughs> something. That's probably the kindest thing... That someone's done. Pretty amazing. So my my last and one of my favorite questions is comes full circle back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is that um, outside of investing in a a personal sense, the best ways to gain exposure to long volatility to positively benefit from change is to expose yourself to makes lots of little small investments. I'm curious what things you feel are most important to do. Uh, on a daily basis, your kind of daily ritual, daily habits, um, things that you feel can lead to these kind of nonlinear payoffs in your life just personally or just daily habits it could be getting a good night's sleep could be one of, could be one example
1: I meditate daily that 's been powerful. I exercise daily that 's powerful, and I try to read something challenging to be challenged by something i haven 't and it, it needs to be something outside of the sphere of influence. So, I mean, it, it's one thing to read market-based things, but if you're just solely in that world, um, you're not making neural connections. So try to try to read something outside of outside of and learn something outside of your
0: direct daily needs. So a little deeper on those three, because I, I think they're three powerful things. How do you meditate? Um, what's your preferred exercise methods, or, or one or more? Um, and then we'll get into a few of your favorite recent books that are outside the investing world. So maybe maybe, um, um, we'll start meditation. What's your method? How do you do it? How long do you do it?
1: I try to meditate about 20 minutes a day. Sometimes that's 10 to 20 minutes, depending on how it works. It's hard to to do it every day. (laughs) Um, Exercising, I'll try to do a combination of weights and and running, and then some yoga put on in. Last book I read that I really enjoyed was uh, Genius of Birds. Sort of interesting. What's and, that one about? Um, it's about the intelligence of birds. Okay. Self-explanatory. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I was, I was uh, in New Zealand, and um, I was just transfixed by these, uh, they called them kias. In New Zealand, uh, birds, birds have developed a niche where most mammals do in, in other parts of the world. And these kias are the only alpine parrot, and they have the intelligence of a four- to five-year-old kid. They're known for completely destroying cars. They they love to rip the the, the plastic out of cars. They're highly intelligent. They can pro- solve problems, and they're predatorial. Um, so I just would watch these birds. I was amazed, amazed by them. Um, and then uh, a friend of mine was reading this book, and she recommended it. And um, it's, it not only talks about Kias, but they talk about a lot of different, uh, how, in many instances, uh, forms of intellect uh, that we don't fully understand that they have in senses. Um, another book I really enjoyed was um, it's called Creativity was about Pixar. The history great book, of yeah. yeah, wonderful book. Ed Catmull, right? Yeah. yeah really great. Book. Yeah, really interesting. It's interesting in that book he talks a lot about how they encourage lots of little failures. Yeah. They want they want their, that's an example of convexity in the process. How a lot of that book is about encouraging people to take small risks and fail and and then learn learn from those small risks.
0: I'm curious, have you ever come across a book called Impro, Improvisation in the Theater? No. Okay, so...
1: Sounds great, though.
0: The author's, it's kind of this cold classic book that is about, I guess it's about improvisation, which I'm not a theater fan, so when someone recommended this to me, and it was was recommended at the same time by my sister, who's a stand-up comedian and an engineer. Actually, he's been on the show. He used to work at Palantir and as a as a computer science guy and so i figured well that's pretty two pretty interesting sources of recommendation i better check this out and it is all about creativity as well breaking down like traditional constructs to try to back to your point about why art is useful Mm -hmm. um trying to kind of teach yourself or train yourself to think more creatively and it's really it's really amazing like i've not recommended that to anyone and, and not have them come back and say, "Wow, that was improv, improv, improv." Impro. Yeah. I'll put it in the show notes.
1: Uh, do they specialize and, on? Because uh, I've always been amazed at what they do in like Second City in Chicago and yeah. some of the improv. Is it sort of that that type of performance based improv, or is it-, it?
0: It is. It is kind of everything. And this guy, Keith Johnstone, is the author. Is I think kind of a hero in probably anyone that went to Second City. So my my sister was actually at Second City. That's how she. Heard about this, um, so I think I, I don't know that world well, but I'm sure that many people would say this is sort of like a Bible of sorts. Yeah, um, and it's it, it really is amazing how body language, how um, how guarded we tend to be, how much of what we do is in, in interacting with other people is about displays of social status and how to kind of engineer that or reverse it or tear those barriers down. Interesting. Um, and like the stupid little things like, um, you know, military officers are, are trained to not move their heads when they give commands because it conveys an authority. Uh, and, and and you can you can see how hard that is if you try it try try talking for a while without moving your head it's extremely difficult and awkward oh. uh, but but it, it does something it's like a, a, a tool that you can use and so there's tons of stuff like that in this book so definitely check that one out Wow I definitely will well this has been an absolute blast um, thank you thank you for for doing this I've, I've certainly learned a ton um, and, and let's keep in touch yeah it was a pleasure to be you